This episode of Shop Talk Live is brought to you by the Taunton Store. In Build Stuff with Wood, the former Shop Talk Live co-host, Asa Christiana, throws out the old rules, creating useful, stylish items using only a few portable power tools, off-the-shelf lumber, and some unusual supplies. Whether you are entering the handmade world for the first time or just looking for easy weekend projects, this book is for you. Shop Talk Live listeners can get 20% off this and many other items in the Taunton store by using the discount code SHOPTALK at checkout. Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking's bi weekly podcast. I'm your host, Tom McKenna, and with me this week are Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. Matt Kenny. Hey. And Ben Strano. Hello. And as always, Jeff Rose is behind the camera trying to keep Ben under control. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> hey, it's been a while since we've all been together. It's kind of uh, kind of nice, but it's a bummer that the summer is, I guess, almost officially over. Yeah. I don't like that idea. But let's start with, uh, let's get right to it with uh, question number one. And this one comes from Cameron. And Cameron says, I have a garage shop that frequently has the door open. My lumber yard is only a few miles away and stores their lumber in warehouses with large open garage doors. In my situation, I doubt there's much difference between the climate at my lumberyard and at my shop. Should I still allow my lumber to acclimate? Also, when acclimating lumber, should I rough cut my project pieces and stick it apart or allow the whole board to acclimate first? Wow. That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of acclimating your lumber. Well, I mean, there's there's kind of two reasons, but assuming you're starting with kiln-dried stock or... Um, where the moisture content is already sorted down to where it's ever going to be, um, then really you're just allowing for different humidity levels between the store you bought it and your shop. And in your case, you know, if you think it's pretty close, then and it, it had already been killed drying and it had been at the lumber yard for a while, it wasn't delivered just that day or something, then I would say just go for it. Yeah. yeah, you can yeah. certainly. It's the what do they call it? The uh, craftsmanship of risk. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think he's probably fine, but I, I do. I maybe you know the cautious advice would be to okay. Well, so one time, go buy it, let it sit in your shop, and uh, you know you should own a moisture meter. Everyone should own a moisture meter. Do you have one? Yes, I, I do have one. I oh. keep it in the fine woodworking shop. Oh, though. okay. So we, <laughs> yes. we, has, we own the it has same a taunt one. And sticker on it, <laughs> right? Yes, uh, I think we both own that one. Um, uh, and just check it that first time and see if there's any difference, you know. Uh, and if there's not, then you know, yeah, forget I, about it in the future. Because I have a weird situation where I I work in an unheated basement shop, and so often if I buy lumber. From a, uh, a reputable hardwood dealer where it's kiln dried and in a nice stored area, I've got to let the <laughs> moisture build up in my wood before I work it. It's right. kind of a weird situation, yeah. but um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Mike and Mike had a point that he didn't mention before, but as a pro, he has a different approach. It's just like the idea of working fast. You know, I got to buy the lumber and I got to build right away. So yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we have some local lumber yards. We usually buy from and depending on on the yard one yard it's like big old warehouses that are unheated yeah. um so in the winter time i'm expecting that lumber to be have a higher humidity than my shop in the winter time which is heated and pretty dry so i'll definitely let it acclimate for a little mm-hmm. while and then the the question was you know about do you bust it down or do you let it acclimate 
as a whole board. And Matt's point was, yeah, just leave, you know, stick the boards in there and keep them in there for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Don't be knocking stuff down. And I pretty much agree with that. But sometimes if I do have to fast track something, I will sort of bust it down. Definitely oversize, but at least get sure. the parts close to where they're at. Um, and, you know, with the idea, yeah, it's still going to acclimate a little bit. I should let it dry out. Maybe it will make it faster. But at the same time, you're releasing all the internal stresses in the boards, and they're going to move anyway. So it's not best practice. Yeah. I, I think, you know, if I know or if I'm not sure there's going to be a difference, I think two or three weeks in the shop is never a bad idea if you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I have a tragic story related to um, lumber storage. I I have some quarter-sawn white oak boards, um, five-quarter, and they're, they were nice. They're like eight and a half inches wide, and I stored them on sawhorses in my shop, planning to use them for something down the road. And um, I didn't look above where I stored them, and my oil pipe, uh, the intake, the, the, the feed pipe to the tank, you know, where they, they fill it sprung a leak and was oh, dripping no. on mm. the wood and I just discovered it this past weekend. Oh. And so I, I, I may have a question for the podcast. How do you get oil stains out of wood and can you burn <laughs> chop saw? Yeah, I think I think it might be those <laughs> sections might be ruined. It's not just it wasn't, stain the rest of it with oil. Ooh, there you go. A new finish line. Yeah. That would really smell good. <laughs> <laughs> but I was bummed. It's like, you know, now I've got to chop up the board I think and just work around the they're small stains, yeah. but I was bummed. So watch where you store your wood. Yeah. I mean, I, oddly, I have not had this problem in a long time because for the past several years, all I've been doing is pretty much using the lumber that I already own. And so I've not worried about acclimating lumber at all because it's all been in my shop right. for years. Right. The only thing I regularly buy now is uh, basswood. You know, that's pretty much the only thing I buy on a regular basis now. Huh. So that's the other solution. Just buy a bunch of lumber and keep it on hand. Yeah. And you yeah. mentioned using a moisture gauge. It's not really critical that your moisture gauge tells you exactly the moisture content of Correct. a board. Yeah. Um, so like the way I use one, I think Matt was, was sort of pointing to this, is if I bring some white oak into my shop and the moisture gauge, the one we have, um, will vary depending on the species and the density mm-hmm. of the wood. So all I do is if I have some white oak that I know has been in my shop for a long time, I'll just check the moisture reading against that with some white oak that I just brought into the shop. And if there's a difference, I don't care what that moisture content actually is, but if right. there's a difference between the two, it means that I'm going to be losing moisture for a while. Yeah, the one that we have in the shop, you have to, like it only has <laughs> one uh, one scale on it. Yes. Yeah. And depending on the wood, you have to subtract or add. Yeah. There's so a little chart. Little chart. There's a chart. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. crazy. It comes with it. Yeah. When really ought to do is, oh, today it's at 20. T- yesterday it was at 22. It yeah. doesn't really matter what the exact reading is. You know it's less today than it was yesterday. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're really looking for consistency and just an even a number that stops basically right right and that's getting your your lumber acclimated to the shop while you're working that's really only half the equation the other half is what is the condition of the shop at the time you're working versus the condition of where your furniture is going to live and also you know depending on the season are you working in a really dry shop in the winter or are you working in a really humid shop in the summertime right and getting an idea of you know, for drawers and doors and stuff, are, are things going to be growing from this point or are things going to be shrinking from this point? Yeah, well, you had a great story about your um, 
Lowboy and the lumber you you purchased from a mail order supplier and how it reacted in uh, the fine woodworking shop, which is notoriously desert dry and hot. Yeah, it's a huge, uninsulated sort of concrete wall shop. And so when the heat is on in the wintertime, it's about zero humidity. It's really, really dry. (laughs) I I had ordered some 12-quarter mahogany from uh, a lumber yard where everything was just stored in unheated sheds. And as it came in, you could hear this tick. Sound as the moisture was was screaming out of this lumber and leaving end checks on everything. So that was scary. I ended up. Um, I hope I did. I I may or may not have, but I should have just sealed the ends yeah. of all those boards at that point because the majority of moisture is always going to leave through the end grain of your stock. Um, so if it is moving a lot, just seal the end grain, and it should mitigate that movement enough to prevent the checks on the end mm-hmm. grain. Yep. All right. Well, let's get to question number two. And this one comes from Ken. Excuse me. Ken writes, I'm planning to make a traditional wooden cabinet with flush mount drawers. I would like to create an even reveal on the sides, top and bottom of the drawer fronts, but I'm not sure how to do that on the bottom. Is the bottom reveal created by simply chamfering the bottom of the drawer front? What do you do? I guess there there are different ways. Uh, Well, I I do one of two things um so one thing is you can uh fit your drawer front uh cut all the joinery and then uh well i should go back and say when you're fitting your drawer front you can uh what the way i do it is is i make that drawer front just fit into the opening you know so it's just a little snug side to side and top to bottom yeah yeah all the way around and then I cut my joinery, and um, uh, I normally would glue the drawer together at that point, and at, then I create that gap around the drawer front. So, you know, I'll knock down the top edge of the drawer front a little bit, and as you're fitting the sides, the width of the drawer into it, you normally create that gap as well. So then you have those three sides, and then you just flip the drawer over, and with a shoulder plane, you can take a few passes on the drawer front, and that will equalize the gap, you know, create a gap on the bottom as well. Um, so I know that's how I normally do it. I know another way that people do it is that uh, they cut all the joinery, but then before they glue it together, They'll either, you know, they take a few passes off the bottom of the drawer front, and uh, then when they glue it together, it's got that gap there uh, from the get-go. Right. That's what I did the last time I made a drawer, but I I don't think I did it for aesthetic reasons. To, to be honest, I did it more to avoid the clunk on the, you know, when you're pushing the drawer. The drawer front scraping the, yeah, on the where drawer. Where the rail, but, yeah. but uh, it is a really neat way to, you know, adjust that reveal around the, the front, and the chamfer helps, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I do the same thing I, I, because in larger case pieces, I definitely need some room top to bottom where that drawer is going to grow. So I'll, I'll tend to fit my drawer fronts really, really tight side to side. And I'll start off with a little, maybe, you know, a skinny 16th, depending on how high. If it's like an eight inch drawer, I'll probably give it a heavy 16th top to bottom. And then relieve the bottom after the joiner's cut to, to visually create a gap at the bottom. Not quite as big as the top, but as long as you have a shadow line there, I mm-hmm. think that helps. However, I was asking Steve Latta, who's a phenomenal woodworker and, and teacher, I asked Steve, how do you go about 
you know, getting the, the visual gap at the bottom. He said, what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, don't do it at all. <laughs> yes. you know, it's just uh, around the three, the sides and the, uh, and the top. Right. Yeah. Uh, which is, a, a, I've seen that a lot too. Yeah. yeah it's not, a, not an issue. Whereas Phil Lowe, who's also another master furniture maker, will take a shoulder plane after everything's together and just sip it across the bottom and, and mm-hmm. at least relieve it. I like it because it does give a visual gap, but it means that the drawer is running on the sides only. Yes. Yeah. And it also, if things get a little bit tight, in the if I didn't leave enough room and in the summertime when it's humid and it starts to grow and get a little bit tight, I can plane off the bottoms of those the sides and not have to be planing the front again, which is always a pain right? if I have to. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there it is. There it is. Yep. There you go. (laughs) Well, hi, Ben. Hey. Um, It's time for our all-time favorite technique of all time for this week. Do you want to start us off, Matt? Uh, Sure. You ready? I I guess so. (laughs) I think I prepared for this. Uh, So my favorite technique of all time uh, of the week this week um, is... Using the flat back of a chisel to your advantage. Um, and I do this... Like in a knife fight or in something? In a knife fight. Opening paint cans? Opening paint cans, shaving, <laughs> uh, cutting cheese, um, and also pattering donuts. Uh, I'll explain all of these uses today. And more. <laughs> Excuse me. So... What I mean by you know using it to your advantage is that um, when you're pairing, sorry, I'm going to cough again. <coughs> this is good pod. It's fantastic, isn't it? <clears throat> that last shot of vodka was just a little too much. <laughs> um, well, anyways, uh, so. Before I before I do any pairing with a chisel, I always take my chisel over to uh, my fine, you know, my eight thousand grit or it's not eight thousand grit, my, my polishing stone, and make sure there's no burrs on the back of it, like the the the, the blade, the the bevel hasn't begun to round over or anything, so it's perfectly flat and smooth. And then when I'm pairing, what I do. And uh, you can somewhat see it in this photo that we're showing. And if you can't see the photo, it shows how I hold, often hold a chisel when I'm pairing, which is with both hands very close up to the uh, bevel. And one of them is used to guide the chisel. And the other one, uh, in this case, I'm using my thumb of my left hand to press the chisel down firmly on the surface uh, that I'm trying to pair down to. Uh, in this photo, I'm pairing the uh, top of a little leg down to uh, the – this is a plinth in a box that I'm making right now. So it's got these a mitered frame on top and a mitered frame on the bottom, and it has four posts at the corners. And so those posts get installed afterwards, and I have to trim them down flush. Right? Cut them short, then trim them down flush. Right. So I'm pressing that chisel down really firmly onto the, uh, the the frame and using the frame to guide where the chisel uh, pairs. And by pressing down firmly, you end up with a really perfectly flush uh, 
here it's a post or whatever it is you're pairing. So by using the flat of the back and pressing it firmly down onto the work surface, you end up with a perfectly flush uh, uh piece you yes. know mm-hmm. so and it's really key here because one of the things that often happens when like if you glue on edge banding and then you're going to plane it down flush later or you have something like this or, or say dovetails and you made your pins proud and you got to make them flush or uh what have you i think a lot of times what can happen is that that ends up not being flush but rather angled out slightly uh and um you have to be really careful to avoid that this technique sort of avoids that because you're you're keeping the chisel flat mm-hmm. onto on the reference surface, right? And then running it along the what needs to be uh, trimmed down. And I don't know, did you uh, put that other photo in here too? So here's another place where I use the same technique. Now sometimes when uh, I'm routing uh, dados here, I used a uh, spiral upcut bit. No, yeah, spiral yeah. upcut. But I did it in my, you know, so that's going to create a little bit some whiskers when you route mm-hmm. that dado. And uh, so by using the same technique, pressing that chisel flat down onto the work surface around the whiskers, you can just run the chisel across and it'll cut them mm-hmm. off and you'll be perfectly flat. Of course, the other solution to that is to use a spiral downcut bit. <laughs> well, I, one of the things I also notice that you do is skewing the blade too, right? That, that's For, purposeful, right? Here it's perfect. Yeah, it's on purpose, and uh, I guess in the other one I was skewing it as well, wasn't Probably I? Probably like a little slicing yeah. cut as well. Yeah, it's a little slicing cut that works really well with ingrain. Yeah, uh, it also works pretty well on the other on the other one where there was a, that that piece that I'm cutting the the data was cut into is probably in the neighborhood of eight to nine inches wide. So uh, skewing it, well, it does two things. I mean, I'm skewing it for one. Because I want to cut those whiskers on the bias. On the, well, I right. want to cut them against the, wood, the away from the dado, so that way there's at least a little bit of something there backing them up. If you right. cut them and try to pair them towards the dado, they, they have a tendency to fold down rather than get cut, uh, or they can. Uh, but with a sharp chisel, that's really not an issue. But but so. Skewing it like that and then also working away from the dado, it makes it easier to reach further in than if you – because I'm working away from the dado. So I'm sort of coming – rather than coming straight in, like uh, 90 degrees to the edge of the board, which gives you more pairing length out of your chisel. If you're coming in at a skew, you get less pairing length from your chisel. Uh, I don't know if I'm explaining this right. Yes, I do. I often <laughs> skew it. <laughs> ben yeah. has some editing to do. But, but <laughs> no. sli- yeah, it, it does give you, a, like Mike said, it, it gives you a sort of a, a more of a, a lower angle of cut, which makes it more like a low slicing. angle. Yeah. yeah, slicing, low angle block plane type thing. You know, I don't own a, um, a pairing chisel, but I have an old, um, I think it's a hawk blade that I, I don't know where I got it from. It just turned up in my shop somewhere. But I use that in a similar fashion when I need to flush like a, a leg to, to the aprons up in the top and it gives me that same flat reference surface. Um, and I use it for also cleaning a glue squeeze out in corners. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I, that I really love about Matt's tip is that I never, even when I use my bevel edge chisels, the idea of doing that hone on the back, that's 
pretty brilliant to me. I, I've never done that well, before. I do the same thing, but I actually sharpen my chisel and then finish up by getting the burr <laughs> okay. off the back. But well, mine's know. always sharp. You know, yeah. it's it's more of a neurotic thing I do huh. just to make sure that it's uh, yeah. You know, but it's hard um, to believe you do a neurotic thing. I know, isn't it? <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, if every time you pair your chisel doesn't have to be sharpened. You know, it might be, you might, maybe you pair it, you, maybe you sharpened it an hour ago and you've only done a little bit of work with it. It's still sharp. Yes. But right. just to make sure that there's nothing there, uh, I rub the, uh-huh. you know, yeah. I flatten the back. Or you can sharpen your chisel, either one. Yeah. But that is, I mean, it's hugely important just the fact that a chisel to perform its function well, it has to have a dead flat back. And that mm-hmm. goes to yeah. sharpening when people do use a strop. You know, it's like for chisels, absolutely not, because a strop, you know, especially on leather or something, you do run the risk of, of dubbing over that edge mm-hmm. a little bit. And then if you have a rounded back on your chisel, forget it. It's not going to work the way you need it to work. Yeah, so right. That's really cool. Cool. How about you, Mike? Um, spacer blocks. Done. Done. <laughs> <laughs> Um, especially for things like uh, double mortise and tenons, twin tenons, which are really tough to get. Not only do the tenons have to fit in the mortises, but they have to be spaced the same distance apart as the mortises are. Um, so I've usually tackled that in the same way in that when I'm mortising, I'll use, say, in this case, I'm using a 5 mortising bit to cut my mortises. So the bit itself, that determines the, the width of the mortise. Um, and then I'll have a spacer block that I'll stick in between the fence and the workpiece in order to cut the second mortise. So now I have a spacer block, which is determining the spacing between the two. And then I'll head to the table saw and I'll use that spacer block, but then I'll also make a second spacer block, which will, uh, I'll make, I'll cut one shoulder of my tenon. I'll put my uh, other spacer block in there to create the proper width of tenon. Um, so that's good. So now my tenons fit my mortises. That's pretty good. But now I can stick the same spacer block I used at the mortiser in between the stop block of on my um, table saw and my workpiece to cut the one shoulder of the second tenon. So now that's perfectly spaced from the other tenon to match the mortises. And then I insert the tenon spacer along with the other spacer. So the final cut is cut using two spacers and it gives me basically two tenons which are spaced appropriately apart to fit the mortises and also the same um, thickness to match the mortise. So it's, it's not a novel technique. A lot of people use it. And a lot of people use it in different ways. You can use it in conjunction with... Uh, router and a fence for doing your mortises. You can use it in conjunction with a bandsaw in the fence to do this. Um, I've seen Tim Coleman do it. I've seen Tim Rousseau. Tim Rousseau do it. I've seen everybody do it. Lots Everyone. So Wow. For a good reason because it works really well. Yes. Everybody's doing it, man. Yeah. Everyone, everyone do the spacer block. Um, <laughs> it's the latest thing. It's the latest. Daddy O. <laughs> When you're a jet. That's cool. So there you go. I, I was thinking I, I, more of time warp. Isn't everyone's <laughs> doing the time warp. Isn't that the song? Well, I, I while so. Mike was explaining it, I was thinking to myself, how did he like just 
roll off an article, you know, in like five minutes' time. It's just so funny. Because he just read the one that Tim Rousseau wrote a couple of years ago. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, just Was Tim no. the one who did that article on Space for Blocks? Mortis, double Mortis and Tenon? Uh, I think it's... No, that was... Uh, Coleman did it, but it may not be the same... Tim Coleman did it. Yeah. And Tim Rousseau. Rousseau did, and I think Tim Rousseau, Rousseau focused yeah. on the space and blocks. Rousseau Another, did it more. in the video, I know. Okay. So. Another guy did it in a uh, sort of Krenov style case on stand yes. article a while back. Yeah. You did it there? Yes. Okay. So, because I did it once, I can say. <laughs> I did it. I did it. <laughs> and now I'm doing it again. This um, Basically, what I'm making here is that uh, it's a double tenon where a arm for a rocking chair um, goes into the back post of the rocking chair. Um, that's actually an article I'm writing now, and that's going to be coming out. The so. new complaint we're going to get, it's no longer going to be every issue has dovetails in it. It's going to be every issue has spacer blocks in it. Every <laughs> issue should have spacer blocks. Spacer blocks and blue tape. <laughs> yeah, it's not an issue until that's done. And number two pencils. <laughs> <laughs> and a, to uh, a toaster, maybe? And at least one person <laughs> thinking like a plane. What was that? What it was? <laughs> Think like a plane. Think like a plane. Yeah. Be, be the plane. Be the that's plane. Awesome. <laughs> cool. Oh, that's a Caddyshack <laughs> reference. Yeah. No, 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 Yes. All right. Pool or a pond? A pond would be good for you, um, <laughs> Mr. McKenna. Yes. Let's <laughs> bring us back. My, um, my people are going to laugh, um, but my technique is clean your shop. <laughs> It's funny. I, you know, I, I take, I'm not cranking out furniture or boxes like Mike and, and Matt are. Um, um, I make a few pieces a year and, and I tend to make a mess and I work in a narrow, uh, shop and, you know, I'm moving stuff around all the time and I don't want to spend time cleaning up as I'm working on something. So eventually, you know, debris piles up everywhere. But the reason I've gotten into this habit of cleaning after every project is that, if I don't do it, I wind up spending 15 or 20 minutes like moving stuff so I can work on something else that I want to do. So I try to make it a point that after everything is, is finished and done, that I go back in and spend a couple hours sweeping and just cleaning up stuff, putting things away. And the best thing, the big benefit for, for the way I for me doing this is that I don't accumulate clutter. Like I've, I'm more liberal in terms of looking at a scrap and saying, no, that's fire, yeah. you know, firewood, firewood, firewood. Or if I have screws lying around, I'm not putting them into a bucket that I'm going to use later. I'm there. It's trash. So all this stuff gets, gets pitched. Um, and then what I do before I start my next session is I get all my hand planes lined up and, and go through sh and sharpen. So I've got a nice big space and I can do all my sharpening and then I'm ready to go and I've got a clean space that I don't need to readjust or trip over, you know, debris that's lying around. So it's a good habit to make sure you clean your space. I mean, otherwise it could be dangerous too. It is, but that's sort of like saying, you know, eat foods high in fiber, low in fat, plenty of fruits and vegetables <laughs> and get a lot of yeah. exercise. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Right. But <laughs> well, I was in my shop last night and uh, I'm currently like in the process of setting up a new shop and I'm waiting for it to be uh, part of it to be wired. So I can't really put things away. Mm -hmm. And I was down there last night. I'm telling you, I almost just started throwing stuff against the wall. I was so angry. I was like, I, I hate a messy shop. Yeah. And, 
Yeah. Uh, when I finally settle into my my shop, there there's a shaker saying, "A place for everything and everything in its place," and that's gonna be my shop uh, because I just I hate clutter and I I don't hate clutter, but I I hate just having to move stuff in order to do something. That's my whole my whole. Point. I hate that. Yeah, yeah, that was driving me crazy. I, I I'm I want to make a a couple of gifts for my my wife and her sister and I. I just this past weekend, I went down into the shop to start, you know, making up some mock-ups of what I'm thinking of, and and I couldn't do it because I had stuff everywhere. And so I said, "Well, I I just sucked it up and said, well, I'm not going to do real woodworking. This is my shop time.'" And I spent two hours sifting, tossing, sweeping, and cleaning. And now I've got a space, like I said, that's ready to go. And now I've got my tools ready to be sharpened, and I can start my next project so he's still just, yeah. planning to make those whales on a plaque for them yes yeah. yes i'm gonna put an eyeball on this one though <laughs> and a smiley face you yeah. know like a googly eye oh, oh a googly <laughs> eye that's awesome so yeah clean anyway show. um let's get back to some questions this one comes from marsh and marsh says i'm making several end grain cutting boards from cherry birch and other hardwoods for gifts generally mineral oil is recommended for sealing but it darkens the wood a lot. I have tried a wash coat of shellac, which seemed to help a little. Do you have any recommendations how to keep the surface lighter in color? I wouldn't do shellac. Run it to the joiner and planer after every use. (laughs) 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 That's how you do it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the thing is a cutting board is going to get, it's a cutting board. It's going to get whacked and cut and, yeah, the mineral oil is good. It's going to darken the wood, but I don't think it's going to ruin the contrast between the woods. Yeah, if this is Marsh, hey Marsh, um, I think you need to soak it with something. I mean, yeah. I think that's part of the longevity of a cutting board yeah. is you really got to get it. And I think mineral oil is probably the clearest finish you can put on it. Um, I do find that you can kind of mitigate the darkening by really sanding the bejesus oh, yeah. out of the end grain. Um, I mean, you're still soaking up a lot of oil into the the pores of the wood on the end grain, but I think the smoother you can get it, the less flagged those little pores are mm-hmm. um, and abraded by sandpaper, the the more even and probably, you know, you're going to minimize, I think, the darkening at the very mm-hmm. surface. So, you know, if you're really, really into it, just, you know, sand 600, 800, 1200, just... Go Until nuts. it's just glass smooth. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you, what was the metric conversion? I mean, from metric, bejesus is a metric measurement. So what's the equivalent in the United States at 1,200 grit? Is that is that correct? <laughs> yeah. Or <laughs> Are we on the air? <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> if no one's listening, are you on the air, technically? Um. That's a really good point. I mean, it almost has the effect of almost burnishing the end grain yeah. in a way. And, yeah. But the other thing, to real, I mean, because we have had this question on more than one occasion, different scenarios, like how do I keep this wood light? And the the answer is, is like, if woods that naturally darken through <laughs> oxidation, it's gonna you're not going to stop that. Yeah, you just can't stop that, and it doesn't matter what finish you put on it. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, which means you have to think about, and then we get back to this, you have to think about that when you're designing, but not cutting boards, but designing right. furniture. You have to realize that maple is eventually going to turn that sort of yellowy, uh, yellowy honey color. Yeah. And uh, white pine is going to turn, you know, a darker yellowy yeah, color. Right. Cherry's really going to get, really going to turn. Yeah. yeah. But there's some woods like walnut. 
walnut gets light with oxidation, and you can't really stop that. But unless you stain it, you know, for example, and then you're not really stopping it; you're just staining it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I guess I would start with woods with as high of a contrast as possible, where you know maple and walnut aren't typically things I tend to combine frequently in furniture. I'd say if I'm looking for an end grain cutting board and I want that design to pop a little bit. You know, I might go maple and walnut and then maybe some middle tone wood uh, in there if I want to sort of mix it mm-hmm. up a little bit. But I'd say start much bolder, as bold as you can if you want to end up with contrast and just accept the fact that it's going to go down a little bit. Yeah, like use purple heart and maple. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's huge. Because that would probably keep the purple in there, I would think. Yeah. Uh, purple heart turns brown. I don't know. Yeah, it does. Just keep it in a closet. So Just it never keep sees it in light. a closet. Only bring it out when you have that special cheese at Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's Please when you break out the chisel, stick out the cheese. Purple heart. If I accomplish nothing else in my life, I want to accomplish that. No one ever builds with Purple Heart again. There it is. Anyways. There's the outro. There's a challenge. The There's gauntlet has been gu- yeah. thrown down. <laughs> no more Purple Heart. I'm quitting. Please. I'm becoming the Johnny Appleseed that rages against Purple Heart as I travel on foot across the country, huh. going wood shop to wood shop. I gotta see where I can get some purple heart. <laughs> People are buying purple heart out of spite now. Yes. That's fine. Hey. Order's just spiked. But that'll just drive down the prices of attractive woods. <laughs> the walnut the walnut market has crashed. What happened? Yes. That's my perfect. That is perfect. It's diabolical. Diabolical but brilliant. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's get to uh, the next question. And this one comes from Douglas. And Douglas says, I just started making boxes, and I'm having problems with squeeze-out inside the mitered corners. I know that miters aren't a very strong joint, so I try and make sure to use enough glue... I'm sorry. So I try to use enough glue. Most of the boxes I make require sawing the lid off. And when I accidentally use too much glue, the squeeze out inside is dry. Most of the time I wind up ruining the pre-finished areas in my attempts to clean it up. There you go. Back to Matt's tip. Yes. Yeah, that's right. How about that? Um, so a couple of things here. One, he's doing it right that you should pre-finish the inside of the box. Yes. Absolutely. Two, you could moderate the amount of glue that you use when you glue up a miter joint if you size the joint first. And sizing a joint means you take uh, yellow glue, mix it 50-50 with water, um, and then you paint that mixture onto the ingrain and allow the ingrain to soak that up for, you know, you can really let it dry, so like an hour or two. And what that does is clog the pores. Um that way, when you go back and you apply the 100% strength glue, it doesn't get sucked down into the uh, end grain mm-hmm. as it normally would. So um, when I size, I do that, and then I just uh, hit the uh, end grain a little with like a 320 or 400 grit paper just to knock it down a little bit. Okay. But it's still got the size down in there. And so you can you, you, you won't have to lather on you know a whole bunch of glue onto that joint. Um, but, uh, I've, I use shellac on the, you know, on my boxes and I've not had trouble with the glue really just popping off the shellac. I do my, the same finish I use on the outside is what I do on the inside. So that's a, you know, two coats or three, two or more coats of shellac. 
And um, I do not apply wax to the inside before I glue it up. But then what I do after uh, the glue is dried, now it depends on what kind of box you're making is it's more or less difficult. If you already have the lid and the bottom trapped in the sides, you know, say in a groove or something, when you cut the lid off, you're going to have to work in from one side only. Most of my boxes, I have rabbits for the top and the bottom, and they go on mm -hmm. after it's been glued up. So I have really easy access uh, into the interior of the box. Just I do the same thing. I use a sharp chisel. I, chisel, I sharpen my chisel. And in the process <laughs> of doing that, I take the burr off the back. <laughs> um, and then I just I press it down to the interior of the box and then just run the bevel underneath the glue, and it should just pop right off. Right, mm -hmm. and sometimes you have to do the adjacent face, too. Yes, you normally yeah. have to do both faces. So It's uh, very satisfying. It is. It yeah. is when it peels off. Yeah, it just pops right off. And um, so that's what I do. And, you know, if you're messing up the interior of the box when you do that, you're probably, one, you need to sharpen your chisel and make sure there's no burr on the back. But also, I think people have a tendency almost to come at that. So the box is sitting on your bench, and you're coming straight down yeah. at it. And you don't want to do that because you're definitely probably going to dig in and mess it up. Right. So that's why what I do is I turn the box up on edge so that the uh, outside face – so it's, you know, it's stand, you know, it's up like this – uh, everyone can see hear the, that. Right? The no, side yeah. you're working on is <laughs> the flat side against I'm working the bench. On is flat against <laughs> yeah. the bench, and then it's sort of standing up vertically. Right. And uh, again, with the blade kind of skewed, you just press it down and then just push it across. Yeah. And because the back, you have this, you know, as, as much of the blade as you can on the uh, on the on the box, and it's flat and being pressed down, it's not going to dig in. Right. Because yeah. you have that reference surface and then a bearing surface, you know, and it's all registering like that. It's not, it shouldn't dig in. So that's how I handle that problem. Yeah. I'm uh, pretty much the same way. The only difference is I tend to use, I add the little table sawn splines to the corners, which really strengthen the box. So for me, the glue joint being really, really strong is not important to me. It just needs to be strong enough to hold together until I get to the table saw and cut the splines and glue are, them in. Are they hidden splines or visible? No, they're visible on the outside. Um, and so when I, I do, you know, I tape the sides together, flip it over, and then wrap it up and use the tape as a clamp. So as they're all taped together and you have the sort of the Vs where the two miters meet, I'll tend to put the glue at the bottom of the V closer to the the tape as opposed to on the face, you know, the edge closer to the inside face. So the majority of glue is more toward the outside of the joint. And as you wrap the whole box together, the glue will migrate from the outside to the inside. And I also sort of try not to use a whole lot of glue. I try to minimize that squeeze out as much as possible. Um, and then if there is some, it usually just sort of, it just pops right off. But I teach uh, box making classes on a pretty regular basis, and it is often a surprise once you do saw the lid off, you know, how much glue can end up yeah. on the inside of the box. Yeah. But yeah, and you know, a nice uh, sharp chisel with no burr usually takes care of it. I've seen really neurotic people uh, actually apply blue tape to the inside box yeah. adjacent mm -hmm. to the miter, yeah. and then all that glue ends up on the tape and you just pull the tape off. Right. I'm not going to go through all that much trouble though myself. It's you know just as easy to 
it's easier to use the chisel. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the pre-finishing sort of is doing what the tape is doing. Yes. And I would point out when it comes to this, uh, I mean, a lot of people, you know, you see a lot of workers, like they'll have an old beat up chisel and they're like, oh, that's my glue chisel. <laughs> no, like, no, no. Uh-uh. I, I use, I mean, I use my good chisels, you know, yeah. chisels get sharp and you have yeah. to dull them. It doesn't matter what dulls them. So just use them to take. Uh, glue off. Your glue I, chisel should not have dried glue on yeah, it. Yeah, right. I, I have a glue chisel, but it's not a beater, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't think I have any beater chisels anymore, really. Yeah, I to be completely honest, I, I use my Lee Nielsen chisels when I do that. Yeah. You know, I just sharpen one and, and there you go. And then if it, you know, it probably needs to be sharpened again, but, yeah. you know, so what? It's a tool. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to Smooth Moves. This is going to be a good one. You want to start us off, Mike? Sure. Um, this is, as usual, it's related to a good technique or best practice in terms of not following a best practice. Uh, in this case, um, reference surfaces are really important. And for instance, when you're cutting double mortise and tenon joints, you need to keep track of the reference surfaces so that if the say the mortises in the leg are not perfectly centered um, by maintaining the reference surfaces and keeping track of them for the mortising throughout the process and and through the cutting of the tenons at the table saw it doesn't matter because everything's still going to match up um, so I have my little arrows for my legs and the reference surfaces of where they were supposed to be oriented when I was mortising and one of them inadvertently was not pointed in the right direction so when I went through my um, my little table saw set up to get the perfect spacing before I start cutting my tenons. I found that on one of them it was really good, and on the second one, it was like way off. And it's like I knew immediately, oh, the arrows were going in the wrong direction. So um, it just took a little more fussing. I basically had to do two completely different setups when I cut the tenons and the arms as opposed to using one and having everything work out well. Um, and then the second smooth move, I may as well throw this in because it was related to the same process. Um, in cutting the, the tenons on the arms, you start by defining one edge of the notch. So I had a stop block set up to, and I dialed that in a couple few tries on a scrap piece until that line was exactly where it needed to be. And then the next cut I needed to make on the stop block, I actually needed to, uh, on the test piece, I needed to reset the stop block for the mm-hmm. first cut. So then I nailed that exactly where it needed to be. Um, and then I got to my real work piece and I realized that that first stop block setting where I needed to make the initial cut, I'd already moved the stop block to make the second cut. So um, so then I had to like take off the stop block, cut the first cut, and then reset everything up. So uh, it was a fun morning. <laughs> Sounds as horrible as, you know dovetailing the wrong end of the piece. Well, I mean, it wasn't in that I was able to recover in real time from everything. It just kind of slowed down the process. Yeah. So if, if anything, it was like the best kind of smooth move where you caught it right away. You knew what the ramifications were. You altered the, the setup. In one case, you kind of had to go backwards with the setup. Um, another one, you had to sort of customize the setup for each piece. None of those, those things are ideal, but I still felt fairly in control of the process because it didn't mean plugging mortises, making yeah. new work pieces and that kind of stuff. So lowest level smooth move. Um, I also have a com- 
pounded smooth move that I can talk about. I I don't think I've said this on the podcast before. If I had, then Ben can tell me to shut up and we'll just move on to Tom. Uh, or Ben can share one. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm in currently making this uh, jewelry box and it's there's three separate boxes that have spacers between them and they sit on a pedestal that has Kumiko in the bottom. And when I started making this, you know, I had some really nice walnut and I make up these really nice riffs on panels and everything's going really well. I cut my miter joints. They're perfect. And at the time, I did not have any yellow glue in the shop uh, for, for whatever reason. I didn't have any. So I was like, that's all right. I have this bottle of liquid hide glue. I'll just use liquid hide glue. Sure. Liquid hide glue is awesome. It is, in theory. Everyone loves it. <laughs> it, is. it is. It's great stuff. Um, so I started using it, and either I didn't check or I just ignored the expiration date on it. They don't mean anything. Oh. Glue does not go bad, Matt. Right. Yeah. I mean, they say <laughs> liquid hide glue lasts you know, a fairly long time. It didn't smell bad. You no, know, that's, usually that's high a problem glue right there. goes bad. It's but how smells. did it taste? As always, delicious. <laughs> I like to warm it up and put it over my ice cream. It's great on rye toast as well. Um, it's better than Nutella. Which, by the way, I don't get Nutella's disgusting. Um, Shut up, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I make these boxes, and um, one of them I'm planing i believe afterwards or no i was go i was cutting notches for splines and uh one of them fell apart i was like what the hell hmm. you know and, it, and i was like well fortunately it's high glue <laughs> so i can just glue back over it so you know i scraped off the high glue from the miter joint applied new high glue and got it to stick together and great, go on, you know, glue in all my splines and everything with high glue. And uh, then I move into a new shop and uh, I get to, and I can't, so I, the, it's been sitting down there and I've not been really paying attention to my shop uh, because I'm in the, I was in the process of moving homes and everything. Right. It gets really humid in my shop. And, uh, I mean, to the point where one day I went down there when I first, when I first started to address the problem, it was like 90% humidity in my shop. Oh no! And I checked this box that I'm making and I see that the, uh, one of the, the, the bottom box, the bottom piece of it had cupped and it had pulled the joint apart. And I was just livid because I realized now that the the high glue was bad. And it just, you know, it just kept leading to error, you know, problem after problem after right. problem because I used bad high glue. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'll never use high glue again. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I think it was that sponsor. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I like high glue. The problem is, is that it does go bad quickly. Yeah. Um, and so if you don't, it's like I can, ha you can have a, a thing, a yellow glue around for three or four years, you know, although I go through glue faster than that, you know, depending on my habit that month. But, um, 
And, but I, I, <laughs> I don't just, know what that means. I just don't. Uh, I don't go through that fast because I I don't use it for everything. And I know there are people who swear by. And actually, the guy that taught me to make furniture used high glue for all his joinery, for all his veneering, and li- I mean hot high glue too. You know, mm-hmm. make, mix it up yourself each morning. And so when I learned to make furniture, I learned to make furniture with high glue, but. You know, it has its advantages, but its advantages are just compared to the drawbacks that it has, uh, just for me aren't worth it. So I'd rather use yellow glue, which is always ready. You know, it's always ready. Yeah, always ready. Yeah. Yeah. So. I don't use high glue. It's not because I don't want to or having good things about it. It's just that gluing is such a stressful thing. I just hate introducing a variable into my process. That's why I haven't used it before. Why do I want to use it here? And when I'm teaching, I teach it, can I get Valley and Bob Van Dyke really likes high glue. And, um, and it's like, Oh, well, why don't we do a glue up with the whole class and we'll use high glue, liquid high glue this time. It's like, yeah, I'm up for it because it's supposed to be really slippery. Nothing swells. Everything comes together really well. It makes glue ups come together a lot easier. And I'm just about ready to pull the trigger. And then it's just like, oh, but you have to leave it clamped up for 24 hours. It's like, no, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, not doing that. Yeah, so it's back to yellow glue and, you know, pop the clamps off, off an hour and a half and and you're going. So, um it's something I want to try out, and I know there's good benefits. I just haven't pulled the trigger yet. But if but, I'm being completely honest, also a reason why I will not use high glue very often. You're a vegan? I am a vegan. No, I'm not a vegan. <laughs> yeah, I have to admit, it's because of the true believers. You know, I'm kind of tired of hearing people saying it's the greatest thing ever. I think Ben just fell off his chair. It's reversible. It's you know, it's it's edible. It slices. It dices. It, it's the basomatic. It's a dessert topic. of woodworking. Yeah, it's just like all right, shut up already. You know, that's that also has a lot. I'm just, you know because I, I naturally have a bit of uh, contrarian streak. Contrarian streak in me, which I'm now getting paid back duly with, through my son. Uh, who also has it. Uh, but yeah, part of it's just like, all right, I've, I've heard enough of this. I'm just, shut up. I'm not going to use it. You know? Well, there's that. The next Which, step is, I'm just not using glue anymore. I'm just not. everything. Well, no, because then I'd have to be in line with the true believers of the... Uh, of the uh, Campaign? No, of the uh, drawboard mortars and tenon, which, you know... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, you're not a... You're not, you know... Did you not read his last article? Yeah, there was what? no no what? glue. Table goes together with no oh, glue. God. <laughs> That's my favorite tool of all time this week. No glue. <laughs> but it didn't use high glue. <laughs> so didn't use high glue. <laughs> there you go. See, the amazing thing to me is we have lunch every day together. <laughs> you don't pay attention at all, do you? <laughs> I knew Mike did use the draw bore on that on that piece. Uh, so that's part of the the joke. Okay. Oh, (laughs) that I do know, but I'm still going to, you know. (laughs) Well, my smooth move is is pretty uh, simple and clear and straightforward. I was helping a friend uh, build some shelving for his garage, and we were using big 4x4s. And so I was using my drill press, and I drilled the counterbore for the the bolt head and the washer. And then I was drilling the the through holes, you know, using the, the point of the of the Forstner bit from the counterbore. And um, <clears throat> when I switched out bits, my first, when I first turned on the drill, I realized quickly that I forgot to take the chuck key out of the, the drill uh, chuck. And uh, it made quite a racket. Fortunately, I have um, 
my Chuck keys attached with a chain so it didn't fly out in my face or anywhere else. It just kind of scared the bejesus Did it come out or did the, just a chain wrap around the quill until it stopped? It, it <laughs> popped. Okay. I mean, as soon as it made the first or I don't know I knew how many rotations it did, but it popped out and okay. didn't completely wrap around. Okay. I think the chain was was caught on something else already. <laughs> so, I think it was, I think the chain was caught on the, the table handle cause it's kind of long. And so I keep it back there, but it, I've, I've done that on more than one occasion. I just felt like an, I felt like an idiot. But I was lucky because I was wearing all my safety gear. I had a face shield on, a dust mask, a hazmat suit, hearing protection, chain safety mail. glasses, <laughs> chainmail, and a respirator, full face shield respirator, ten foot pole. And I was turning on with a ten foot pole. I believe that's all the safety gear you're supposed to wear when yeah. using well, woodworking <clears throat> machinery. Yes. Uh, and I had a pair of backed up safety glasses on and goggles. Uh, yeah. And it's so helmet. It hit, Helmet too? Yeah, I was wearing a yeah. helmet. Yeah, it hit. Steel so toe boots? I do. I wear steel right, toe okay. boots, yeah. Uh, Kevlar gloves? Kevlar gloves. Knee pads? Knee pads. <laughs> Even when I'm sanding, I wear all of that stuff. I had knee pads on. Um, and uh, it only hit the face shield. So it didn't hurt me. Oh, that's good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I was at that climactic. <laughs> <laughs> All the protective gear helps. Life is anticlimactic, you know? Ooh. It just got dark. (laughs) (laughs) Party's over, man. That's it for this episode. You're right. It is. That's all for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Don't forget to head on over to tauntonstore.com and use the discount code SHOPTALK to get 20% off your purchase. Please spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. Shop Talk Live is dependent on your questions, so make sure to send them in to shoptalk at taunton.com. If you're watching on YouTube, please click that thumbs up button. Finally, you can keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook and look for all of us on Instagram as well. Thanks for listening and have fun in the shop. That was dark. (laughs) Well, that's not inaccurate. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to have to tell my kids that. Son's getting ready for college. Son, yeah, it's anticlimactic. The campus looks great now. It's going to be a hellhole when you get there. Yes. Yeah, it will be. Mm. College life. All right. Take it off airplane mode now. It was not on airplane mode. It was. It was. That was a calendar oh. alert that popped up.